Tanzan versus Tanvir, a Supreme Court case about religious and civil rights, and whether or not you can sue the federal government for damages when it violates them. Jennifer Cowan from Deba Voice and Plimpton joins us. I'm Lawrence Clitty, and this is Legal Talk Today. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's a real privilege to be here. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your day. It means a lot to us and uh, part of my day that I definitely look forward to. And so uh, my team and I put together a great show today, I think a really important one. It's about religious uh, freedom, civil rights, and holding the federal government financially accountable when it violates those rights. And so as you as you heard in the intro a little bit there, this is about the Supreme Court case, which was recently decided, Tanzan versus Tanvir. It was decided on December 10th. And I think, unfortunately, was not really picked up in the media, I think, with the election cycle and contested election, obviously the recent uh, violence at the Capitol and uh, impeachment. You know, this this particular case didn't find its way to the top of mind for the media, but that's okay. The good news is we have Jennifer Cowan joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, Jennifer, your firm worked on this case in a pro bono uh, sense, and you know I'm really glad you did. And and uh, you know I have to say that even though the media seemed to kind of ignore the importance of this case, I don't think it was lost on communities, other communities of religion. And so obviously, your your clients are uh, Muslim men. But uh, I was noticing in my research that the uh, the amicus briefs uh, in support of you know we had Buddhists, Christians, Sikhs, other Muslims, Jews, and even Mennonites uh, stepping up in support. Support of this case. And so why don't we start from the beginning, Jennifer? You know, tell us about the parties. I want to learn about your clients. I know it was three Muslim men who found themselves, I guess, on the, the, the bad side of business with the FBI. And then also tell us about some of the defendants. Sure. We did work on this on this case pro bono. We're co-counsel um, with two terrific civil rights organizations, the Center for Constitutional Rights and the CLEAR Project at CUNY Law School. Our clients are four Muslim American men all of whom refused to be informants on their Muslim communities for the FBI, and as a result were put or kept on the no-fly list. They sued the FBI agents with whom they had interacted, as well as the more senior government officials who were were responsible for the FBI's policy and practice of using the no-fly list in this improper way. You know, as I understand it, Attorney General Eric Holder, FBI Director James Comey, and Director of TSC, Christopher, is it Piota? Mm-hmm. And Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, ended up being on that a list of defendants. Is that right? That's right. And they were all sued in their official capacities. And so when other people took over those roles, they were automatically substituted in as defendants. Gotcha, gotcha. And so let, let's learn about the story of the case. And so obviously, you just said that uh, your clients, three uh, Muslim American men, were asked to spy on their community, their religious community, and they didn't want to cooperate. And then everything seemed to snowball. This seemed to go on for a series of years. So you know, tell us the story. What happened here? So each of our clients' stories is slightly different, but there are very similar elements. Three of the Three of our clients um, were approached by FBI agents and asked to become informants on their Muslim communities. Um, And when they declined, each of them was then put on the no-fly list and then told in different ways that the way to get off of the list was to become an informant for the FBI. The fourth client, who actually was not part of the the case at the Supreme Court, but was at the district court level, um, had the reverse happen in that he he was... uh, put on the no-fly list and then approached by FBI agents. 
Did the FBI ever give a reason that they were applying so much pressure to your clients? Did they say, hey, listen, there's a really uh, terrible bad guy out there. We're looking for him. Did they ever give a reason? No, to the contrary. The FBI agents were not interested in anything specific, but mostly interested in general information about the Muslim American communities in which our clients lived. Well, let's talk about the no-fly list. And so, you know, obviously, uh, the more I learn about the uh, no-fly list, uh, the more I think that there might be some due process issues with it. It seems like it's uh, uh, disproportionately easy to get on the no-fly list without, you know, a real meaningful process and really difficult to get off of it. And as I understand from my reading of this case is that uh, your clients were not just personally impacted by this, but also professionally. So can you tell us how they suffered because they were put on this list and were not allowed to fly in airplanes in the United States? Absolutely. It, it, it had um, really significant um, and clear impacts on them, both personally and, as you noted, professionally. On a personal level, they were not able to fly in any flight um, coming to or leaving from the United States. All of them had family members who lived in other countries, and they were not able to visit them for many years, missed both joyous and sad life events, um, and were cut off from their families. On a, on a professional level, they, because they weren't able to fly, they missed out on professional opportunities. As one example, Mohammed Tanvir, who's the first main plaintiff, was a long-haul truck driver. And so his practice was to go on his truck route and then fly home. Once he was put on the no-fly list, he couldn't do that, and he had to leave his job. Well, let's talk about the procedure of the case. And obviously, this case didn't just arrive at the doors of the Supreme Court automatically. There was a, a series of steps along the way. And so, you know, the, the, your clients were, were concerned, obviously, about the no-fly list. But uh, as time went on, they were worried about the damages, the impact on their life, and they wanted to be compensated for that. So, you know, tell us about the procedural history of this case. What was the strategy? So the case was initially brought by the CLEAR Project at CUNY Law School in 2013, um, and the Center for Constitutional Rights and Deborah Voice came on as co-counsel in 2014 when we filed an amended complaint. The complaint sought two types of relief. One was injunctive relief and asking for our clients to be taken off the no-fly list, and the other were monetary damages, both for the lost wages and for the costs associated with being on the no-fly list. When you're on the list, you don't learn that until you go to the airport to get on a flight and you're refused and they refuse to to let you on. So our clients lost money on airplane tickets, sometimes international tickets, which they weren't able to use because they were on the no-fly list. So that was the relief that we sought initially. The government moved to dismiss the case on a number of grounds. And then right before the hearing on the motion to dismiss in the district court, all of our clients got notices. The notices that didn't actually say they had been taken off the no-fly list. It said that the government knows of no reason why they should be unable to fly. So that was June of 2015. And at that point, the injunctive claims fell out of the case because we had, uh, we had obtained the relief that we wanted. Our clients were off the no-fly list, and that was really important um, for them to be able to, to go back to living their lives fully. But there is still the damages portion, and the district court dismissed that on the grounds that the plaintiffs did not have the right to sue individual government officials for damages under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. We appealed that part of the ruling to the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit reversed the district court 
And will that, yes, in fact, under the under RIFRA, which is the abbreviation for the law, individuals could sue for monetary damages. The case was in the Second Circuit for a while, um, and then the government sought certiorari in the Supreme Court. And then the case was delayed again in the Supreme Court because oral argument, which was scheduled for last March, was canceled because of COVID and was scheduled for October. Well, and before we get into the impact of uh, this case before the Supreme Court and the ultimate decision uh, that the court made, you know, just, just kind of recap for us. You know, you, you talked about 2015. How long has this been going on for your clients? Each of them was appears to have been put on the list at some at a different point, but they were all on the list for several years before they filed suit. Um, and they filed suit initially in 2013, and the government didn't inform them until 2015 that they were off the suit, off the list. So, you know, if you if you add all of it together, they have been fighting this, you know, for seven, eight years. Oh, wow. And, and affected by it for longer. That, that's that's a long time to seek justice here. Well, let's turn it to the Supreme Court. Now, you all got an eight to zero unanimous decision there. And obviously, I think this this case uh, predated, even though it was in December, predated uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's involvement. And so eight to zero. And, you know, obviously, uh, sovereign immunity was pulled up here. You know, generally speaking, can't sue government uh, for some of the infractions it, it uh, commits against you. But in this case, there was a difference. And so the difference being is that now you can seek some damages. And I understand that parts of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act ended up being part of the discussion. So can you tell us about the precedential value of this on our rights versus sovereign immunity as the Supreme Court uh, saw it? Sure. So sovereign immunity, um, you're absolutely right, protects a government against being sued unless they, they explicitly waive that protection. And the federal government has allowed suits against government officials in their individual capacities rather than their official capacities. And the question that that the Supreme Court was considering was whether or not specifically the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allowed for monetary damages against government officials in their individual capacities. Um, And so it was really a question of interpretation of the text of the statute. The statute says, you know, a person whose religious exercise has been burdened may obtain appropriate relief against a government. And government was defined to include officials or anyone acting under color of law. So the, so the question became, what is appropriate relief in this context? Is it just injunctive relief or does it also include monetary damages? And quickly following up, Jennifer, you know, what what damages were they awarded and uh, what's the precedential value of this case going forward? So our clients have not been awarded any damages yet. The case went up to the Supreme Court after the district court dismissed it. So we are are at the very beginning of this case, even though it's taken so many years to get here. And we're the case will now go back to the to the Court of Appeals and then to the district court and then we'll be involved in the next steps, which may be another motion to dismiss on other grounds or discovery or some other path forward. So we still have a long way to go before our clients are awarded anything. What the Supreme Court said was that they can sue for damages, which is what we intend to now go ahead and do. The presidential effect of this decision is important for all religious communities because It allows people who have been harmed to have a real path forward to holding government officials accountable. Ramsey Kassin, who's our co-counsel who did the oral argument, made a point before the Supreme Court that if the only relief you can get 
is an injunction, then government officials have every incentive to interfere with your religious practice as much as they can, because the worst that will happen is they'll be told to stop, and then they can move on to the next thing. Allowing people who have been hurt to sue for damages means that government officials will have to assess whether or not their actions violate the law before they take those actions rather than afterwards. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. It was wonderful having you on. Thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. And thank you listeners for tuning in. I hope you found this program informative and worthwhile. We appreciate you investing your time with us. And if you like the show, please do us a favor and leave a review in your favorite podcasting app. It helps us climb those ranks. As usual, we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com so you can read for yourself firsthand. And lastly, but never leastly, I want to thank our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN crew. They always do a tremendous job. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.